you have your Bible, uh, I want you to turn to two places. Uh, one is in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, and the other is in the book of Philippians, chapter 4. I'm going to be in both of those texts this evening. But let me just begin, first of all, by saying once again, thank you for tuning in to our Wednesday night Bible study, our Wednesday night church. It's our opportunity midweek to connect you with the Word of God, to tell you what we're going through, what we're doing, what you can expect on the horizon, and to get a lift, a boost uh, from God's Word. So we're glad that you joined. We're glad that you came to worship with us and worship in your homes. And we have gotten so many great reports from people who have tuned in from all over, and, and the Lord has really spoken to them. We're grateful for that. Let, let me also say thank you for your continued support. I know it's not easy because... Uh, we usually gather together and then we make uh, 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 use of our agape boxes. We point them out that you can put a cash or check in that. And it's uh, sort of depending on online giving or mail-in. And yet you've been faithful to do that because we're not slowing down. We're actually ramping up. And so uh, we want you to know that all we're doing is retooling the ministry and using ministry resources in different ways, like reaching our community creatively during this time, giving you programming during the day, as well as bringing food and supplies to people in our city. So we're on it, and we're, we probably never work harder than we are right now. And uh, we're grateful to God to be able to do it. Well, um, not a day goes by where I don't hear something like this, man, these are weird times. <laughs> or, gosh, what a strange time this is. Or, we're living in unprecedented times. You know, it's, it's as if, even though it's been a few weeks or a, a month, maybe a month and a half total that this has happened, it's like we're still not believing it. We're still in a daze. And at Groundhog's Day, it's like, really? You wake up, this, this is actually happening. So it's sort of dawning on us in phases. And um, because of the situation we find ourselves in, I'm noticing people are getting really creative with what they do. Entertainers are sort of stepping up to the plate. They're deciding, let's, how, how can we entertain America differently, providing content and performances for us who are quarantined? Like uh, just this last week, iHeartRadio and the Fox Network uh, joined together for a thing called Living Room Concert for America. And they had, a, it was star-studded, it was hosted by Elton John, and I noticed that some entertainers even uh, creatively uh, wrote these little ditties about the coronavirus and about hygiene, little reminders of, of what we have to do to stay safe during this time. Then last Sunday evening, I believe it was for King and Country, right? They did, they did a great concert. We watched it in our home, and uh, for King and Country, this great band, we're good friends with them. Um, the, the two brothers were together in one room, but the rest of the band was meeting together uh, in, in separately. They were in their own little homes and their own little studios, and it was sort of piped all at one time uh, for us in our living room. Very, very creative, and, um, and, and we really loved it. Then here's something that you may not know. Bob Dylan released a song recently right in the middle of this coronavirus he 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 released he dropped a 17 minute song which is sort of a bob dylan thing to do and uh it's oddly about the death the murder of jfk i listened to the song and uh, it's a song called murder most foul 
But because Bob Dylan released it right in the middle of the coronavirus, everybody's wondering, what do the lyrics really mean? This must be a secret message about the coronavirus. So, of course, Dylan fans love to do that. The title of this message midweek is something special because I want to rise to the occasion as well and find out what God is doing or saying in the midst of this. So the name of this message is God and the Coronavirus. Now, I could just as easily have titled it God and Birth Defects or God and Cancer or God and Famine or God and the Holocaust or God and Genocide. There's a number of titles that sort of play into the same theme. Because here is what we find ourselves in. We who believe in God, and we do, find ourselves in a fallen world where we are dealing with evil. And it's in real time. We're we're dealing with this now, in real time, while we believe in God. We know this is God's world, but we also know this world has been cursed by God. At the same time. So Psalm 24, David writes, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all who dwell therein. We believe that. We believe God created this world. It's for his pleasure and purpose, and he wants us to enjoy it. The earth is the Lord's, but it's also a world God himself has cursed. So Paul writes in Romans 8, The whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs until now. So that's Paul's way of saying the world that we live in, the world that is the Lord's, this is not what God intended when he created it originally. It's fallen. It's cursed. So we believe in God. We live in his world. But we live in a world marred by evil. Now, in in all of this, to be frank and to be really honest about the coronavirus, I am praying and hoping it will move us. It'll move us all. In different ways. If you're not a believer, I I pray it will move you to consider the claims of Christ, the person of Jesus Christ, um, the scripture, the promises of God. I pray that it will move you to acknowledge God. Then I pray that if you acknowledge God, it will move you to believe in God. And if you believe in God, and probably most of you who are listening do believe in God, I'm, I'm hoping and praying this will move you to cling to God. Not just believe in him, but, but cling to him. Back in the 1600s, there was a German a Lutheran pastor uh, by the name of Martin Reinkart. And he ministered during a time of famine in his country and disease. Things got so bad that at one point he was the only pastor left in his town. Every, every other pastor fled along with the population. They, they were bailing. They were leaving town. He stayed. And he ministered to people during which on one occasion, on one day, he conducted 50 funerals in a single day. So it was a desperate time. And no one would remember the name Martin Reinhardt were it not for a song that he composed, a very famous hymn in German, Nun danket alle Gott, which is now thank we all our God, with uh, hearts and, and, uh, and voices, who wondrous things has done in whom the world rejoices. I remember singing that as a child. I had no idea that's the backstory of it. He wrote it during that time. Now back to the title, God and the Coronavirus. We live in a world now with a virus. We live in a world with a virus that spreads very rapidly 
and yet one in which a world in which we firmly believe unequivocally God is absolutely in control of. He is in control. God runs the universe with his feet up. It's not a stretch for him. It's not hard for him. Nothing escapes his purview. There are no cosmic accidents that God has to look at and go, uh-oh, what just happened? Nothing happens by chance. Nothing happens by accident. Three times in the book of Daniel, that prophet stood before a king and said, God rules in the kingdom of men. God rules in the kingdom of men. He said that when his own nation has gone into captivity, when he was a slave in a foreign country, he said, God rules in the kingdom of men. Now, in the very next chapter of the book of Daniel, he said to a different king, that was Nebuchadnezzar, that another king he approached and spoke to was Belshazzar. And he says, the God of heaven holds your very breath in his hand. I want you to hear that. God holds every breath you take in his own hand. So, in the midst of all this stuff happening day by day, the new reports, I've been asking questions. Questions have been going through my mind. Questions like what, why, how, and what now? And, and that's what I want to look at in our, in our time together. First of all, what? What is happening? Uh, what is the current state of things? What is the church going to look like in the weeks and months ahead? Then questions like how? How am I, as a believer, to think during this time and feel during times like this? Am I to think and feel like everybody else out in the world? Am I to think differently than they think? Then the question why? Uh, something we've touched on in the last few weeks, but why does God allow something so small to stop something so large? The whole world has come to a screeching halt. It's like God put the brakes on everywhere in every single nation. And then the question, what now? What am I supposed to do now about the condition I find myself in? So to begin with, there's a text in the Gospel of Luke Chapter 13, uh, it's an interesting passage because Jesus deals with some controversial subjects uh, beginning in chapter 12, uh, verse 1 of chapter 12. And he's, he's, he's dealing with some pretty tough subjects, controversial subjects, and it's a discourse he gives in which he is interrupted a couple of times. So in chapter 13, verse 1, sort of in the middle of this discourse, it says, there were present at that season... Some who told him, told Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered these things? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Very interesting conversation that, that Jesus has, a very interesting a set of circumstances. These were obviously two um, events that, Everyone in the audience that Jesus was speaking with 
they were familiar with. So it prompts an issue. It prompts a question about, about these Galileans. And, and probably what happened, we don't know for sure, but uh, piecing it together, probably in Jerusalem at the time of the sacrifices, a group from Galilee had come. Uh, there was some kind of insurrection in the temple. Pilate brought his men in and killed some of those Galileans, in a sense, mingling the sacrificial blood of the animals with their own blood. So because people dealt with evil in those days very, very simply and crudely that if something bad happened to you, it's because you've done something bad. If there's evil in the world, it's because you deserve it. It's a direct cause and effect relationship. They bring this up with Jesus. So using this as a springboard, let's talk about this first question. What? What is happening? What's going on in our world? What's the current state of things? And what are we instructed to do? Well, you could answer that question. Uh, you, you could be up here answering. The whole world knows this. Um, we're in a world pandemic. It has uh, currently affected 203 countries and nations worldwide. So if you look at a globe, it's affected the entire ball. Uh, all those countries and territories. More testing is being done every single day. The more testing that gets done, the more cases are being revealed. So we're understanding every single minute just how quickly this, this virus is spreading and the transmissibility of it because more tests are being done. So far, 850,000 cases have been detected, which means we are told by world authorities to stay apart, to wash our hands, to cough into our elbows, to stay at home. And just yesterday, the coronavirus task force has made a very dire prediction that in our country, we might even expect 100,000 to 240,000 lives being lost in the next few weeks. According to one of those now famous members of the coronavirus task force, Dr. Deborah Bricks, she said, I know it's stressful to follow the guidelines, but it is more stressful and more difficult to the soldiers who are on the front lines. That is the doctors, the nurses, the healthcare workers. Uh, there is no magic bullet. There is no magic vaccine or therapy. It's just our behaviors. So because of that, the same task force is telling us that the 15-day flatten-the-curve exercise has now been extended for another 30 days to the end of this month, the end of April. Which means Easter, which is one of the grand celebrations historically of the church. We love to get together. We love to celebrate together as we have been used to doing all crammed elbow to elbow, shoulder to shoulder in our stadium with 20, 30,000 people and here in, in our church services. We won't be able to do it exactly the same way. Now, this is the first time ever in history we have ever seen something of this magnitude on a worldwide scale. So it is truly historic. Um, feeding into the question of what is what if it's longer than that? I mean, they said 15 days, then 30 days. What if it's longer? And some are even predicting that. Now, hard to imagine, but can you imagine Thanksgiving and Christmas all alone? Yeah, stop it. It's like, don't even go there. Um, so we find ourselves in a very unique situation as believers, 
a Romans 13 situation where government authorities worldwide are giving uh, mandates to their population bases, what to do and what not to do, and we're told to obey those authorities. And also, as we mentioned last Wednesday night, a 1 Corinthians 13 situation where love does the highest good, so we quarantine ourselves so that we don't spread it to other people. So during this time, we're asked to be apart, not be together, self-isolate, self-quarantine, which to us, I mentioned this before, as believers in community is a strange practice. It's strange to maintain our distance. Most everyone who's a believer knows Acts 2.42 by heart. They gave themselves to the apostles' doctrine, the breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayers. Those are exercises people did in the early church and throughout history for the last 2,000 years in proximity with one another. They didn't do it alone. They did it with each other. They, they gave themselves to the apostles' doctrine. That is, they sat together in the same room listening to the teaching as expounded by the apostles. They gave themselves to the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. That is, they were devoted to being with each other, doing life together, breaking bread. That included uh, taking the Lord's Supper together, uh, having a common meal together, praying together. But now we've had to alter the script to read They devoted themselves to the CDC guidelines, social distancing, hand-washing, and prayers. That's what we find ourselves having to do. It's a sacrifice. It's an inconvenience. But it's worth it. As one person put it, some things must be that other things might be. That's what we're hoping for. We're hoping this is going to get us past the hardest point and get us into the clear. I'm hoping and praying that we're all going to look back with a sigh and go, man, it was worth it. We're so glad we did that. I'm hoping and praying it'll be like what Joseph said to his brothers at the end of the book of Genesis. What you meant for evil, God meant for good to save many people alive as it is this day. So that's the what. That's what's going on in our world. Now, I want to deal with this question, and and I don't want to skirt it. I really want to deal with it head on, though I won't answer it sufficiently because I don't think it's ever been answered sufficiently. Why? Why does God allow coronavirus to abound? Any virus for that matter. Let, Let me frame it for you this way. Why does God allow natural evil? Now, if, if this were a philosophy class, and it's not, it's real time where the world's experiencing, but if this were a philosophy class, we would be looking at the problem of evil in two categories. There's natural evil and there's moral evil. Natural evil is what happens naturally, tornadoes, earthquakes, viruses. There's moral evil, what people do to one another because they're fallen. Uh, they hurt each other. They say bad things about each other. They kill each other, etc. That's moral evil, moral and natural evil. So why? Why does that happen? Now, I bring it up because I don't want you as a believer to ever be afraid of the question. I, a lot of us are afraid of it. Say, oh, don't ask that question because I don't know how to answer it. And everybody asks me that question. Unbelievers ask me that. Don't be afraid of the question. Jesus wasn't. You know, he leaned into it. He didn't answer it exactly like they wanted him to. In fact, what he did is used it as a platform to talk about a greater issue. That is being separated from God as sinners for all eternity. But he didn't say, don't ask me that question. He, he leaned into it. 
When we ask the question why, we are used to asking it not at times like this. Uh, we, we ask it in philosophy classes. We, we ask it as armchair philosophers. Well, let me tell you why there's evil in the world. Now people are asking this question with emotion. Yeah. Now people are asking the question why with desperation. Why would God allow this to happen? Think of the time when Lazarus died. And when Lazarus died and Jesus showed up at the funeral, you know the story of Mary and Martha, they didn't ask him the question philosophically. They said, if you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. In other words, why didn't you come sooner? That's desperation. That's emotion. And what I love is Jesus didn't really give them a long explanation. In fact, he didn't give them an explanation. It says Jesus wept. So he entered into their pain instead of trying to unravel the mysteries of the universe for people who were suffering in the moment. And I think as believers, we need to do that. Now, it's understandable to ask why. Everybody asks why. Um, I asked why when my brother was killed suddenly in a motorcycle accident. I asked that to God. I cried out to God. I asked friends, why would God allow this? Um, On the day that I got a phone call that my father had died from my mother, the very same day that my wife, Lenya, who's sitting right up here, lost a pregnancy. I asked why. When my mom got a stroke and died, I asked why. When my wife came down with very malignant cancer and the doctor said the word malignant, I remember going away into a restroom in a hospital crying, going, why, God? So it's understandable that people ask the question. And I have touched on this on a a couple of different studies lately, but I sort of want to drill down on it just a little bit. Now, again, philosophers would call this natural evil, but let me ask you a question. I want to sort of turn this on its ear. If it's natural, then is it evil? And and if it's evil, is it really natural? Right? I know we categorize that in a philosophy class as natural evil, but in and of itself, there are certain things that aren't really evil. A tornado. I don't know about you, but I love the Weather Channel. I love storms. I think they're just awesome. I love tornadoes. I've always wanted to be one of those guys in those tornado chasing trucks. I know they kill people. I know they're devastating. I know they're horrible, but they're beautiful in and of themselves. And you know what? Scientists will tell you that viruses under a microscope are beautiful. Beautiful to look at. Marvelous to look at. Dr. Vince Vitale said, And I quote, there's a whole category of needful viruses. We need them in our bodies. We have them right now in our bodies. The vast majority of viruses are not bad and don't do bad things, he said. In fact, if we didn't have viruses in the world, bacteria would replicate so quickly that it would cover the entire earth and nothing could inhabit the earth, including us. Close quote. So start thinking of a virus potentially as something not evil, but something in its right place is beautiful. Now, I'm not trying to be a scientist here. I'm not trying to be a junior philosopher, and I'm not pretending to know why this virus came at this time in world history. I'm not not claiming that I'm going to unlock that mystery for you tonight. But I am here to say the Bible is not silent on this issue. 
You know that the Bible speaks a lot about plagues and pestilence and diseases and natural evil. It's all over the scripture. Uh, I have a friend uh, that I interviewed this week, uh, Joel Rosenberg, from his quarantine in Jerusalem. He's 14 days quarantined in Jerusalem. And while he was quarantined, he decided he was going to look and study and find out what the Bible says about plagues and, and pandemics. So he, he wrote a 12-page sheet that you can download for free. If you go to the joshuafund.org, you can download this fact sheet. Uh, 12 pages. It's called The Bible, Plagues, and Pandemics. He discovered that the the word pandemics isn't in the Bible, but plague is and um, pestilence is. It shows up 127 times in the scripture. Not always as a terrible infectious disease, but sometimes as a terrible infectious disease. He says, and I'm quoting from that paper, throughout the Bible, we see repeated examples of God sovereignly using diseases throughout history to accomplish his divine and sovereign purposes. Now, you know that Jesus said in the last days, there would come Matthew 24 famines and pestilence and earthquakes. I'm not here to suggest that we're in that time that Jesus spoke of. I believe he was speaking specifically of the seven-year Great Tribulation or the, the, the Tribulation period, the last three and a half years of which are called the Great Tribulation period, where all hell will be unleashed on the earth and a third to a half of all mankind will be wiped off the face of the earth during that time. But we are seeing birth pangs. We're seeing the groaning of creation. We're, we're seeing the possibility of that even in our own lifetime. So while I was in this phone interview with Joel, I said, so Joel, why does God allow plagues and pestilences from a biblical perspective? He said, well, from my research, let me give you three reasons. Number one, plagues and pestilence are sometimes a divine judgment to an individual or a nation or a group of nations for chronic unrepentant sin. I'm not saying this is that. But sometimes in the Bible it is. Number two, he does it to one nation to warn other nations who are not experiencing that judgment. This is what happens in chronic unrepentant sin. So to get to get a hold of them. And then number three, he says, as a wake up call to shake individuals and nations from their spiritual slumber or rebellion. That's from a biblical perspective, just a sort of a one, two, three punch, which is interesting because uh, the same day in the Washington Examiner, uh, there was a news article that said nearly half of the country, half of the United States, 44 percent, believes that the sweeping and deadly coronavirus is a wake up call from God. So can I just say? If it is a wake-up call, then let's answer the phone and and, and let's wake up from our slumber. Let's give our lives to Christ. Let's move from acknowledgement to believing to clinging in Him. If it's a wake-up call and you think God may be trying to get a hold of your life, pick up the phone and surrender to Him. I think it was yesterday um, during one of the, maybe the day before, in one of the White House press briefings, There were business people who were stepping up to the plate and using their businesses to make masks and respirators. You know, America's coming together in this. 
And one of the president's um, uh, guests was uh, a friend named Mike Lindell. Now, if you watch television much, you've seen the My Pillow commercials where he's holding the pillow and talking about uh, mattress covers and pillows. And he sold a lot of pillows. Mike Lindell is a believer who said at that White House briefing, God has been taken out of our schools and our nation has turned its back on God. Let's use this time at home to get back to the Word, back to reading the Bible, and back to spending times with our families. I'm glad he said that. He just sort of used that as an opportunity. I don't know why this virus is happening at this time, but I pray that God will use it for his glory to move individuals and nations back to him, including you if you're watching this. So that's the... That's the why and that's the what. I want to talk about the how. Um, How should Christians be during this time? How should we think? How should we feel? Uh, I'll give you one word as an answer. Content. Content. Listen to Philippians chapter 4. Now, keep in mind, Paul wrote this from being quarantined in a Roman prison. He was chained to soldiers 24 hours a day in his own house, but he was under house arrest. And he said these words in Philippians chapter 4, verse 10, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned that whatever state I am in to be content, I know how to be abased, I know how to be abound everywhere and in all things. I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Those are Paul's words while under quarantine. Now, we learn something about contentment. Paul said that. But number one, we, we understand that it's learned. I'm glad he wrote that. I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. So contentment is a learned quality. It does not come naturally. It is not a natural human trait. Kids don't grow up naturally content. Am I right? Right? They don't. Anybody who has them knows that. Um, Any of us know that. What does come naturally is negativity, complaining. Why did this happen? This shouldn't happen. That's natural human behavior. I've learned... God has taught me. God has shown me. I've grown. I've matured to be content. I've always loved the story about the guy who went into a monastery in Spain. And uh, it was a monastery where silence was maintained. So you could not speak at all. You were only allowed to speak every two years once and only two words. So at the end of two years, one of this guy in training came and was, was brought before his council. And he was allowed two words. And he said, food crummy. That's all he said. Another two years went by. They brought him in and they, he said, bed lumpy. <laughs> and so then he went back and another two years he came back and he said, now this is like, like six years. So he said, I quit. <laughs> and his superior looked at him and said, well, it doesn't surprise me because all you've done for the last six years is complain, complain, complain. <laughs> that comes naturally to us. Contentment is a learned quality. Second thing we learn about contentment, contentment doesn't depend on quantity. 
Paul said, I know how to be abased. That's being really, really low and without a lot of stuff. I know how to abound. That's when I have it really good and I have a lot of stuff. When I am full and when I am hungry. So it doesn't depend on quantity. Contentment can be yours anytime, anywhere, regardless of condition, regardless of the situation. Does not depend on more creature comforts or disposable income or even health. You can be content. You can be content. You learn it, and it's not based on quantity. And third, contentment is directly proportional to God relationally. He said, rejoice in the Lord. He said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I want you to hear those words from a prisoner in a jail cell under quarantine. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That was Paul's philosophy of life. I would say that's his banner statement. That, that, that one statement described who Paul was as an individual. I can do all things through Christ. It's exactly the reversal of what Jesus said in John 15 when he said, without me, you can do nothing. Without him, I can do nothing. With him, I can do all things. So contentment is is directly proportional to God or Christ relationally. The closer you abide in him, cling to him, the more contented you're going to be. Corrie Ten Boom, I've talked about her often through the years. She suffered at the hands of the Nazis in concentration camps. Uh, she was beaten. She was starved. Uh, and, and she was in the concentration camp with her sister. Her sister died during that time. She survived it. And she said, you will never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Some of us are being stripped in our lives right now. Things that we trusted in are being taken away. People that we love perhaps may be taken away. And we're left with perhaps just Jesus. You're going to find, we're going to find that Jesus is sufficient for this, for these things, in this time, at this moment in history, and Christians can rise up. So ask yourself, is Jesus just an important part of your life? Or is Jesus Christ the very center of your life? It's a question only you can answer, but I think you should answer that question. In your own heart, tonight, today, tomorrow, Ask yourself, is Jesus just something I've added to make myself a religious person, a, a moral person? Yes, I should, I should believe in something so Jesus. Or is he the center of your life? Again, I'm praying this coronavirus moves us so that Jesus becomes the very, very center. So we've just discussed a few questions. What's going on? Why? How should I think and act? I want to close with perhaps the most important. What now? What do we do in the midst of it? What now for the church? Now is the time for the church to be the church. This this is the time for us to be the body of Christ. The hands, the feet, the mouth, the heart of our Savior. I cannot fully answer the question why God allows evil. Nobody can. Beware of anybody who says, I know the answer to that. Because I don't think it can be fully explained. Jesus didn't even answer the question when he was asked in Luke chapter 13. 
He used it as a platform to answer a more profound, deeper, more important question. Job didn't even have God, the father, answer the question for him when he pled throughout the book and had his philosopher friends trying to discuss why evil happened to Job. All God said at the end is, you don't know as much as I know. That's kind of all God said. You don't know what I know. I know more than what you know. Who is this? Here's God's words. Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? In other words, you don't know what you're talking about. Where were you when I created the heavens and the earth and laid the foundations and hung Orion and and the stars and flung them into space? God knows more than... So what what I'm saying is that Job didn't have the answer as to why answered. Um, The people in Jesus' time didn't have that completely answered. But I can answer this question, and that is, what now? And, And Christian, hear me. This could be, this should be our finest hour. This should be the church's brightest moment. I don't know if you know this or not, but the director of national, the National Institute of Health, the director, the one who has 4,000 people working for him, including Dr. Fauci and Dr. Bricks, is a guy named Stephen uh, uh, Francis Collins. Stephen Collins is one of our guys on our church. He's an archaeologist digging in Jordan right now. Dr. Francis Collins is a born-again believer, and he's in charge of that 4,000 men and women who are in the National Institute of Health. God is, is in this. Then have you seen the news reports about Samaritan's Purse and the hospitals they have up? In Cremona, Italy, they put up a hospital. In Central Park, they put up a hospital. They have like 70 doctors, some of the finest immunologists, virologists, and all these people who work on infectious disease. They're in New York, in the name of Jesus, ministering the hands and feet of Jesus. Then we have our own Calvary of Albuquerque with the kindness campaign and the kind hearts you are displaying and bringing food in and distributing that to needy folks. So I agree with a little article I read in Christianity Today, though I don't always agree with Christianity Today as a magazine. They said something I wanted to just lift out because I agree with it. They said God can use the coronavirus for good because God is good. Because God is good, God can use even evil for good. Back in 1527, a plague hit Europe. And I told you this a few weeks ago when we met, that Martin Luther was in the midst of what is called Black Death, the bubonic plague in in Europe. And so he had to face that. And uh, the plague hit his own town. I didn't read this quote to you that I'm about to read, but... When all that was going on, Martin Luther wrote a letter to his friend, Dr. John Hess, and was giving the response, what he himself saw as the biblical response to the bubonic plague as a minister of the gospel and as a believer. And this is what he said. He said, I shall ask God mercifully to protect us. Then I shall fumigate help purify the air, administer medicine, and take it. I shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed in order not to become contaminated and thus perchance inflict and pollute others and so cause their death as a result of my negligence. If God should wish to take me, he surely will find me and 
I have done what he has expected of me so that I am not responsible for either my own death or the death of others. If my neighbor needs me, however, I shall not avoid place or person, but will go freely as stated above. See, this is such a God-fearing faith because it is neither brash nor foolhardy and does not tempt God. I think that's a beautiful response. He's saying, I'm going to be here. I'm going to be responsible. I'm going to fumigate. I'm going to breathe good air. I'm going to practice social distancing. I'm going to do all the things they're telling me to do because I want to be healthy. But I'm going to be here to minister to people. And so are we as Calvary Church. We're going to be here to minister to this community. We're not going anywhere. Um, we're, we're, we're working, like I said, maybe more creatively and harder than ever before. And we're going to emerge better than ever before because of it. Hey, guess what? Um, did you know that on the top of Torah scrolls, you know, in synagogues, they have the Torah scrolls, the five books of Moses. They're in, a, in an ornate scroll. At the very top of the scroll in most synagogues, usually emblazoned on the gold, is, is a crown, a golden crown. Now, it's an emblem in Judaism. It's quite well known. And there's lots of different explanations of it. But one of the simple explanations is that God is our king and the word of God is to rule over us. That's the idea. It's the crown. Now, you may or may not know that, but I don't know if you know this. The word corona in the term coronavirus comes from the Latin word that means crown. And that's because when you look at it under a microscope and you see it, it's, it's how it looks. It, it's how it presents itself. So it is dubbed the coronavirus. And there are d- several different types of coronaviruses around. So coronavirus means crown. I'm just saying that in closing this message in hoping that you will consider that the world's present affliction is not just in the context of a disease that releases horrible pathogens, but rather as an instrument of God to, in the very least, get our attention and bring us under the submission of the king who wears the crown, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Let him be our king during this time. Let me close this out in in prayer uh, uh, before I introduce our guest. Father, we just pray for the word of God. We pray, Lord, that it would sink into our hearts, that we would take it to heart, And that as we ourselves are wrestling with the questions of why and what now and how do I think and act, that we would be motivated to be moved to acknowledge you, to believe in you, to submit to you. I pray for those who don't know you. I pray they would turn to you during this time. Maybe you're getting their attention and they're tuning in to this Wednesday night Bible study. They're seeing it streamed or they're hearing it on the radio or they're watching it on a television set. I pray that right now they would say yes to Christ. And if you are listening by radio or by live stream or television, if you don't know Jesus, um, we're all alive and we're all going to die. So take the opportunity while you're alive to get ready to face the inevitable. Give your life to Jesus. Get right with God. And you can live with a, a peace and a joy and a contentment and a purpose like never before. If you've never done that, just right now reach out to him and say, Lord, I believe in you. I trust in you. I know I'm a sinner. Forgive me. I place my faith in Jesus, the Savior who came from heaven to earth, died on a cross for me personally, rose from the dead. 
I turned from my past. I turned from my sin. I turned to Jesus, my Savior. It's in his name I pray. Amen. Amen. 